it's important to build up in your uh, interpersonal bank account good feelings and good memories, even though we all have bad ones and tough ones. Thank you for joining us on Doorknob Comments, a podcast that we created to discuss all things involving mental health. We take the view that psychiatry is not just about the absence of illness, but rather the positive qualities, presence of health, and strong relationships, and all the wonderful things that make life worth living. I'm Dr. Farah White. And I'm Dr. Grant Brenner. We are delighted to have a very special guest, psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, author, and writer, Dr. Harvey White with us. Dr. White is a founding member of the American Family Therapy Academy, has been in practice on the Upper East Side of Manhattan for many years. He has a lot of accomplishments. I think his greatest accomplishment is teaching people how to love and be loved. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Dr. Farrah White, is there anything else you'd like to say about Dr. Harvey White? No, I think that's it. All right, does something else come to mind? I I feel like maybe the apple doesn't fall (laughs) far from the tree. I would agree with that. Nicest thing Grant has ever said. (laughs) Very happy to be here. It's a very interesting subject, which ripples out into so many other areas. So I'm delighted to be here. And we can talk about this COVID and uh, the uh, strategies people have used or discovered or been invited to uh, deal with it? You know, some people have either returned home uh, after many years of in living independently to, to sort of quarantine with families. And some people have had a lot less contact with their families because they're trying to stay away to sort of protect. Yeah. Exactly right. So you have too much closeness and too much distance and not enough predictability about when it will end or ameliorate or reshape itself. With this COVID, you have people indoor, more indoors and inside, uh, less outside, more eating and drinking and less exercising. Those are all risk factors that undermine resilience. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, I was I'm working from home, though. Today I'm in my office, but I've been working from home a fair amount. And uh, I learned something interesting. There are these two small human beings that live in my apartment with us. Mm-hmm. I'm told are are my children. So I'm wondering, that's a little joke, a uh, very little joke, apparently. But, you know, what are the up- upsides for family? <laughs> Thank you. That's very kind of you. I think you were saying that Dr. Toffler mentioned that some families are thriving. Obviously, not everyone is, is so lucky. But, you know, what, what did you want to say there? Uh, there can be opportunities for close contact and close conversations. One of the other things we have more of and less of, there is more indoor activity and more time for rumination and regrets I find in many of my patients and less time for uh, talking and singing. But one of the things that people have discovered is taking advantage of the opportunity for close, uh, connective conversations with uh, people in the family who were uh, busy with other things going in and out of the family. A family that is hunkered down, as we say, is a family that is in a closed space that can be uh, useful as a way to share intimate conversations that are not usually indulged in. People talk about what 
what's what's to do and what did we do and what could we do rather than what uh, the purpose of all of this uh, family uh, togetherness and and play and uh, what the family means in more open terms so there's so there, an, there's opportunity for creating shared meaning exactly right meaningful conversation purposeful conversations family mythologies family stories i've encountered a number of families that have discovered things about their children or about their parents and grandparents Ah. that were unknown people can review a family history consisting mostly as we know in family therapy of coming and going and work on communications you know the old the chinese word for disaster is opportunity and crisis crisis and danger is the same uh symbols right so situations like this tend to push systems one way or the other meaning a family can either kind of like further isolate and worsen their historical problems or they can take take the opportunity to get to know each other better what i wanted to ask is whether you think the the trauma element helps people to discuss say parents talking about their own history of adversity which they might not otherwise have shared with their kids you know um and having a meaningful conversation versus you know, watching, say, a lot of television together. Uh, absolutely right. Families that do take great pains to limit screen time and uh, distraction time, they get into these conversations and discover things about the family history which were traumatic. Uh, you're quite right. This is a time of crisis, but it is a time when one can turn crisis into opportunity rather than danger and shutdown. And And the more families uh, get into their history of previous epidemics, previous uh, trials and tribulations, ups and downs, economically, socially, romantically, uh, the more you hear histories about previous generations, the more resilience, the more options people have in in their growth. And maybe, maybe not so different in some ways, though. They didn't have Zoom in 1918. Yeah, I I was actually just going to say how you think having Zoom and texting and social media, all of these things sort of allow us to stay not fully connected, but like somewhat connected to uh, work, friends, and, you know, families that are not together have been relying on it. But do you think that it changes the dynamics? And what do you think about people who are getting together online instead of in person, um, do they lose something? All of the high-tech uh, togetherness is a boom. It's a strategy. It's a, It ameliorates the isolation and the sense of uh, danger that people have. I think it's uh, a wonderful thing to have. One that I've heard of from many people who were in London during the war is, this is like the Blitz. You run for 
recovery. You don't know when it's coming and you don't know when it's going to stop. And uh, it takes people away uh, suddenly like an assault. And many people, I included, have had uh, shocking immediate losses. I have a, had a friend who was out for dinner one night and three or four days, three days later, he was on a ventilator. And two days after that, he was gone. And people die alone. Uh, people die without uh, connections, except with essential workers. Yeah. It's a horrendous, inhumane thing it to, is. Uh, to try to visit and come to visit somebody in need and have to say hello and goodbye and how are you doing on an iPad. That's a huge yeah, problem for people, and it's sure. it's it's very sad. It's similar in a lot of ways to a lot of other traumatic disaster situations, and and yet it's a chronic disaster that we don't understand that well. We're not very familiar with, and pandemics like this, uh, according to the the data, this big, they only come along every fifty or a hundred years. Now, I'm kind of reminded of the Great Depression. Also, again, it makes yes. me think of my father, who who grew up during the Great Depression. One thing I do when I'm confronted with very difficult things is I tend to uh, rely on humor quite a bit. So, I did want to point out one thing about the, the Spanish flu. Uh, pandemic in 1918 is that they they didn't have to worry about a slow internet connection. Uh, that, <laughs> so I'm envious. Correct. Yes. Um, uh, other worries supplant old worries. Right. Uh, every problem brings with it new problems in its solution. The overflow into economics is something that is very important to families. What do you mean the people, overflow? People, Meaning uh, how unemployment. I, unemployment oh, in okay. families okay. is a an existential demoralizing condition that makes being short of funds even worse. It's a real danger. I mean, there's a real risk, and, and we're we may be facing a sort of a secondary disaster wave of evictions, right? Uh, as, exactly right. As there's not a lot of support from the government. Food, clothing, and shelter. Well, one of the things that uh, seems to have happened from the government, based on what did happen uh, during the Great Depression giving bank holidays, Keynesian economics uh, opened the door to flexibility in the creation of money and the creation of credit and the securing of our uh, financial institutions. And having learned from the Great Depression and the New Deal that followed the New it, Deal, yeah. Uh, and there's the Green Deal have, also. Uh, we have some of the payroll protection plans. Well, that's and, good, but... Uh, I want to just break it down on a more like micro level for people who might be listening and wondering how unemployment um, or the slow family business or whatever else parents, you know, whose kids see them worrying and not working, kids who are fresh out of college and not able to find a job because there are none, are there ways that either we can support each other or the family can support each other? Uh, a resilient family always is uh, a buffer to the kinds of stresses that will follow on when the rules change so unpredictably and uh, dramatically. Families are there. Families, as Robert Frost said, are the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. Uh, families uh, provide a kind of a backup 
families which are caring uh, uh, supply each other with food, clothing, and shelter or do whatever they can to get it from uh, a system which is struggling to supply food and shelter. Community uh, is, uh, is Community is too. exactly right. And that brings up what this means for patients with mental illness who are suffering more than people who do not have mental illness. Uh, One of the things Dr. Leffler pointed out is that frequently patients with mental illness who are used to being in the community serviced uh, system, they uh, have a feeling they're less overwhelmed than people who have never needed such services. There's a sense of not being as isolated. That's exactly You understand now. Yeah. What was that, Farah? No, I was just saying that I think that's something because now collectively we're just all feeling so anxious about this, so concerned about contagion and contact. It's touching on a lot of things that I think people have felt alone with for, you know, a good deal of time and and that there's something something very unusual about an anxious person who's who's suffered and maybe been the only one in her family to have to manage these feelings and now uh, has a lot of company with it. Yes, now the field is leveled out. Now you know what life has been like for me and there can be a role reversal. Patients who have chronic illnesses or OCD or anxiety or other kinds of major mental uh, illnesses, they're used to being in the system and they can guide and parent family members who are overwhelmed as if assaulted. In in case listeners don't know, right, like Dr. White is your father, right? And my first thought was kind of like, okay, Dr. White Sr., do you think people are not as tough as we used to be. There's a feeling nowadays that people are sort of more vulnerable because things have been relatively good. I had another thought though, yeah, and I wanted to ask you about how to tap into the wisdom, you know, that that people who have had issues um, hold, as you were saying, that someone who's struggled with, you know, an anxiety disorder for years has a lot to offer someone who is blindsided. One of the things family therapy focuses on as a primary entree into the psychological and emotional and even physical processes consists of communication. Families can sharpen and make more specific and make more loving their kinds of communication with each other. And hearing about uh, the travails of people who have had a rougher time the, the importance of uh, good and healthy communications could not be, I couldn't emphasize uh, anything more firmly. Uh, that doesn't come easy to everyone. Yeah. Right. I think there's another piece of it, which is that people who have struggled or, you know, have had challenges that they've needed to overcome are often just much more compassionate, you know, when someone else is suffering. It's almost like they can intuit what someone else's needs might be, what they wish someone would ask them. And, you know, I think that that those particular family members, um, I I sort of disagree, Grant, that people are less resilient. I think people are dealing with much more at a much earlier age, like the latency 
period has just been shrinking, really. Well, um, I, I, I don't mean to disagree, but I wasn't yeah. I wasn't saying I believe that was true. No, I was no, no. I, I understand. I just think that... I think it's a common perception. You know, right. there's a... Def, what is your definition of resilience, right? So some people are kind of tough and stoic and they don't communicate and they mm -hmm. think that's the best way to go. And then other people, as you're saying... Um, are perceptive and empathic and they kind of know the right thing to say without needing to like learn it. Right. But in what ways do you think people are more resilient now than, than they used to be in the, say the great generation? Uh, I think there's a great evolution. The challenges are different. The resiliencies are different. Community resources are different from what they were uh, in the past. Uh, I don't know if people are tougher. Families have travails. Every human being has uh, uh, stresses. Some people who are more, more the CDC report said that uh, pointed out that uh, uh, this COVID and the adaptations to the COVID are toughest on young adults and minorities and uh, people who are essential workers and especially unpaid caretakers. I think there's a great variability. The more people are able to talk to each other and get history and get in touch with uh, what goes into good communications, it's like it's like marital therapy. It's important to build up in your uh, interpersonal bank account good feelings and good memories, even though we all have bad ones and tough ones. Now could be a time where we connect with family members, you know, give support, get support, feel for each other and and help sort of build up, you know, that bank of good feelings. Um, it's, it's almost like um, a second chance to be in the same house together and relate to people differently than we might have growing up. Mm -hmm. You could repair some developmental experiences. I've, I've certainly um, heard of a number of families where the young adult children are at home and it gives them a chance to to work through some issues and and do things uh, better. You know, almost like yes. a second chance. I've had a lot of families experience that. People who were thrown together, but they eventually make a human system uh, that adapts to whatever uh, is coming from the outside, which is uh, extremely stressful. It is a tsunami of things and strategies to deal with it that, uh, that are uh, social and physical and economic. Spiritual. Uh, yes. Existential. Sure. I sometimes think, you know, it's helpful for people to have very concrete feedback during times like this, because one thing we understand about stress and and, and chronic stress is even worse, um, is that it, it, it reduces cognitive capacity. And mm -hmm. so... I like to think about something like sometimes I'll, I'll call this communication hygiene, you know, just simple guidelines for people to talk with each other. Do you have a couple of pearls of wisdom you would share about how families should actually conduct themselves? Should should they bicker and interrupt each other a lot? Do you recommend that? And, and I can make a lot of ad hominem attacks it's, or it's interesting, Grant, that you bring that up, because just today, this morning, I was thinking about how growing up. You know, we have some practical jokers in the family. In your family. We were, yeah. We were not allowed to 
put each other down. So you would say no put downs. Is that one of the rules, one of the communication rules? Um, we like to tease. What's the difference between teasing and bullying? And can't we just, can we have a good time with it? What's the difference between playful teasing and hostile teasing? Yeah. The effect on the listener, there are rules of good communication. Uh, there is a book called Your Family is Good for You, uh, the title of which has been under some very reasonable <laughs> question, a book that I wrote, but there is a chapter on communication. One of the things that, Farah, you mentioned is no put-downs, sticking with the issues rather than being in a family courtroom attacking each other's characterology or who somebody is or what their intent is, but sticking with the effect rather than the intent of communication to define whether it's useful or not. Don't say never and don't say always is a very good guideline. And being able to listen as well as to uh, get clear what one wants to say and what one wants to accomplish. There is another point about good communication that relates to people with this serious mental illness, and that is to uh, limit uh, expressed emotion. And people who have a major a psychiatric illness, if they live in a household where emotion is, is very limited and never overwhelming or powerful or uh, hostile, they are hospitalized much less frequently and have, um, have uh, relapses much less frequently than those who uh, are much more measured and rational in their conversation. The idea of, of taking turns speaking and listening, kind of mutual yeah. respect is what came mm -hmm. to mind. And uh, I, there are two things I tell my kids, which I think are awful, but you can tell me if they're if I'm a terrible parent or not. <laughs> One of them is it's not who starts the fight, it's who stops who stops it. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other thing I like to say is that it's only play if both people agree that it's play. Those are two wonderful guidelines. And I wanted to ask you a question. So, okay, there's an analyst named Bion who talked about group process quite a lot. We, we won't go down that rabbit hole right now because it's very didactic. I love his work. And he says, sort of like a group has two basic modes. One is the basic assumption mode where, where the group is like, off the rails. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're not doing the work that they're there to do. If it's a therapy group, they're not doing therapy. They're fighting about, you know, um, how come Joe was late last week and it ruined the group. They're not actually. And then the other group is called the working group. And the working group is in a mode where they're focused on the task at hand. And, and they're of one mind about that. What would you say the primary tasks are for families during COVID, say? I would say they're the same as they are before, during, and after COVID, and that is to be there for emotional and physical support for each other, for maintenance. Families are there for us to go for a recharge, to go when you have to go there, they have to take you in to get support, physical and emotional support, to get a sense of what should what is and should be the task at hand. Yeah, I think that, you know, in a family, everybody should have 
let's say an outlined, I don't know, role. For example, the kids go to school, the parents go to work, or one parent works and one parent. One of the kids home. is one of the kids is the couples therapist, right? <laughs> the, no, no, I no. I think just that you know, the family is only doing as well. It's sort of like a team is only as strong as its weakest player. The family is only doing as well as the person who's sort of the least functional. What can we do, you know, to make every family function at its top overall level? There's a way where that makes sense to me, kind of where you have to take care of everyone. And so you have to pay special attention to people who have greater needs. So what would be an example like, uh, a teenager in the family who mm-hmm. is particularly under stress because Zoom just doesn't do it for her or him. They're also afraid to go outside and meet up with friends in person or is something of that nature. What What's the kind of situation you're actually seeing now? Yeah, the things that I see are people um, becoming either overly engaged in like online life. Uh, for example, you know, want to play games nonstop because it's their only interaction or, you know, and they're otherwise very, very isolated, too isolated. And so I do think that it's the role of other people in the family to say, you've been sitting at, at your computer for the past 10 hours. It's time to come sit down for a meal with us. To restructure their daytime activities, to give advice. Yeah. Families are most crucial to people who are very, very young and just enter into this life and the elderly, and they are sporadically necessary for those in young adulthood or middle age uh, who can come and go for reasons of uh, physical caretaking. But there are times like in adolescence when kids will get involved maladaptively in things outside the family, drugs, hypersensitivity, sensitivity, dysfunction, they will they will need to navigate some kind of uh, community, extra familial uh, community input, but it is best if it incorporates the family yeah. and the family's history yeah. with various uh, community uh, uh, resources. Yeah, um, I think, I, I think that it's, especially important for parents to be aware that you're right, young children um, are more in need of the family. But I do think that adolescents, especially with the uh, freedom that they have from their computers, like they can go anywhere, they can see anything, they can talk to anyone. And they're, you know, just by nature, impulsive, a little bit labile and so i think that we really need to sort of rein that in what does labile mean (laughs) means that their mood really vacillates quite quickly uh one minute they're happy and you're the best parent ever and the other minute they're well i guess this isn't just this isn't just teenagers but this this really could be any any child and i think that the, the internet is just too vast and wide and dangerous and that it, sort, it presents a unique challenge. The internet uh, creates uh, kinds of addictive urges that substances also provide. Yep. And, Quote unquote, dopamine hit. A dopamine yeah. hit. And, it, and it's designed to be rewarding. Exactly right. People have to uh, watch for themselves. We're all, uh, a family is like a, a vessel 
and we all have to watch each other uh, for getting too close to the edge or uh, for being swept overboard and influences. And alcohol is still the biggest of all of our uh, problems with addiction, alcohol and food. The internet is designed to create the same dopamine uh, pulse that to drag people back to it over and over and over. Having a baseline expectation from other family members can serve to modulate that. Yeah, I saw some. I saw some study we talked about where families that have healthy behavioral control, but not too much psychological control, the kids tend to grow up healthier in the presence of support. Mm -hmm. So you, mm -hmm. you give the kids clear guidelines, but you don't get in their heads and be like, you know, you're wasting your time on your phone. And you just say, well, you have half an hour to play and now we'll do something yeah. together. It's probably good for parents to do things together with their kids and encourage creativity yes. as well. The other thing, which is a bit of a blessing, is that under the right circumstances, you know, what you were talking about extra familial relationships or, you know, chums, friends. We have, for example, our, our kids in our local group, they all know that there's this one internet space they can go to and meet up with their friends. It's like a virtual playground. And just like playgrounds in New York, like you're not allowed to hang out there if, if you're uh, a lone adult. And so the kids know they can go meet up there so it's safe from, you know, free from predatory interactions. And the friends who are vetted in the local group can all hang out. So I'm curious. It's like a, a chat room, but, you know, video. I'm trying not to say Zoom because we're not uh, receiving any royalties from Zoom. Okay. But... <laughs> Essentially, it's a Zoom room that the local parents have set up that their kids Thank can go you. to anytime and they can message each other and kind of meet there. And like I said, it's a little bit like running to the neighborhood playground and it's yeah. a safe it's a safe space. Yeah. But is are people watching it and our parent is there oversight, parental oversight there? Yeah. Not too much and not too little, in other too words. Much. Yeah. Uh, depending upon the age of the kids. No, I think it's a good point. I think that kind of venue is one that is uh, a growth, uh, a growth experience, and kids uh, uh, learn uh, teamwork and they learn who is what, who whom can be counted on to be uh, helpful versus hurtful, competitive. Some uh, autonomy. Everything I needed to learn, everything I ever needed to know, I learned in kindergarten. Yes. I think it was Robert Fulgham's book. And there is, uh, there is uh, truth to that. Yeah. Depending upon the age and the venue, the seven-year-old kids can't do what 17-year-old kids can do. Different levels of autonomy and yes, oversight. Exactly. You don't want to be a helicopter parent either. Being overprotective right. probably isn't useful. No, but I do think that, you know, especially because we have these mobile devices that can be hid pretty easily, that, but that are very powerful. I sort of have a policy that I don't want screens in rooms with closed doors. Do you have a parental control uh, software? I know that's something some parents use. I it's believe, a funny balance between yeah. um, sort of spying on your kids and making sure they're safe. I just have a sort of open door policy, which means, I mean, I guess I can't look at Snapchat, but I can look at a lot of other things if I need to. Having no, no expectation of 
privacy when it comes to internet stuff. I have absolutely respect boundaries, physical boundaries within the house. If they want to be in their rooms alone, that's one thing. But if they want to be alone, alone in their rooms with a phone, it's just not okay with me. It depends on the age of the kid and what uh, what might come across the telephone. Uh, Anything and everything comes across people's minds without any wiring whatsoever, mm-hmm. and that can't be legislated or helicoptered. You can't. Uh, I think not yet, anyway. You can make someone feel guilty about it, or not. <laughs> Or not, yes. Uh, you can try to uh, induce guilt. Or uh, shame. Accountability of yeah. one, I don't know which is worse. Uh, we can have a long dialogue about that. Yes. It doesn't accomplish uh, as much as uh, rational decision-making between a knowledgeable, authoritative uh, person on one hand and the other who is uh, dealing with a particular impulse. Yes, uh, Yes, the authoritative parenting is supposed to be the best, not authoritarian, not permissive, not neglectful, not indulgent, but authoritative. I can't help but wonder... How old were you when you were allowed to get a phone, Dr. Farrow White? I didn't have one till college. I wish I'd had a little more regulation in my own household growing up. I was allowed to do almost whatever I wanted, though one of the main things was that I, it was always important that I get good grades. That was one of the mm-hmm. sort of um, overarching rules of my household. I didn't have to study, <laughs> but... I did have to get reasonably good report cards. But now they say to value the effort rather than the product. I don't know how true that is. I mean, maybe the product is meeting kids where they are and having them do their best is important. But I think it's important to value uh, the effort more than to impose a characterological uh, value. You are so great. You are a bad kid. Uh, You are a wonderful kid. Uh, All of those things are a little bit hollow, uh, and it's uh, much better to value uh, how long they worked on it, what they uh, got out in particular that was surprising. Uh, Processing kids' schoolwork is as important as the as the final product, that is true. Some some kids are more rebellious temperamentally, I think. Yes. And how do you deal with a kid who's more rebellious and kind of very talented and in some ways unruly, especially during uh, a time when we're really stuck together? Too much closeness can lead to uh, heightened impulsivity. It depends what goes into that unruliness. Uh, Kids need to exercise uh, their bodies, their minds, their uh, ideas about the past and the future. They need to have particular interests. And depending upon if the kid is uh, inherently or conditionally unruly, uh, you have to create uh, spaces just like that space for get-togethers where they all get together on a Zoom uh, or something like it, one has to uh, create some appropriate and useful uh, release activities uh, for kids who are unruly. You're hitting on something that is particularly difficult because very impulsive kids find this uh, lockdown uh, much more difficult than kids that can enjoy things or uh, enjoy being together. 
Games are a good, good uh, release and activity that is safe and uh, knowable and can counteract uh, what is the primary uh, trauma of this lockdown, which is its unknowability. Who's going to get assaulted and how long is these phases going to last? Are there any games you recommend to families in particular that you like? I had a whole bunch. I don't have them right in front of me. Well, I know you're a very big advocate for, well, Parcheesi, chess. What I love is that there are some, so Parcheesi and chess, you know, those are more like thinking strategy. There are games that are more physical. Um, Cranium uh, is one of them. And they have like games where the kids can really get up and move. They have video games. Even even charades, right? Oh, yes. They're charades. It's a wonderful game. Risk, life, all of these games. But you're talking about how to get exercise, right? I see the kids doing PE over their Zoom school. and. yes. You know, it, it requires a different skill set. You really have to have some flexibility, I mean, cognitively. Yeah, but I think grabbing things like th- that are safe to use indoors, hula hoops are great. All of that can can only help. And I know now every time I come into your house, there's toys on the floor and floor time. So I think that That's is... for me and your mother. <laughs> <laughs> the kids have to fend for themselves. <laughs> We play a lot of cards. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cards are good also. One of the important things about this COVID that we shouldn't fail to mention is the importance, even though sometimes it's a bit constrained, the importance of uh, having some kind of schedule and a group and activities. Routines. And routines. Mm-hmm schedules that you stick to even though it's in a different time and place predictability to do it it's hard to initiate it but once done physical uh, walking outside uh, uh, activities inside going to this spot in the house and this can be in very small uh, apartments or it can be in larger uh, apartments but this place is for that this place is for that. Those routines and the, the fungibility of time and space, which you have when everybody is at school seven hours a day, that does not exist now. But it's important to impose that, to uh, provide it, to re- pro- yeah. provide it, especially for kids who are uh, younger than 13, 14. Right. Yeah, that gives them some predictability. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, I mean, I know we're, we're actually wrapping up now, but I do think, I mean, even with this project now, Grant and I have a weekly meeting. It's a set time. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I am so, so grateful to you for joining us today Thank you. Thank and you. for, yes. for yes, everything. I, I heard a lot of things and uh, a lot of things are buzzing in my brain too. All right. I thank good. both of you. All right. It's a wonderful idea. Everyone be well and take care of yourselves and one another. Exactly. Take care. Take care. One disclaimer, this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of psychiatry or any type of medicine. It's not a substitute for professional and individual treatment services, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you feel that you may be in crisis, please don't delay in securing mental health treatment.